Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, William Bradford and the Voyage of the Mayflower. let's continue with our story about the Mayflower. Sure enough, five days later, on March 22nd, Samoset reappeared with four other natives. One of these men was the previously described Squanto, a.k.a. Disquantum, whose background was even more complex than Samoset's, a member of the Patuxet tribe that formerly populated western Cape Cod in southeast Massachusetts. Squanto was one of the natives abducted by Thomas Hunt and sold into slavery in Spain. Ransomed by a religious order that educated and evangelized such individuals, he either escaped or traveled to England, where he lived with the family of John Slaney, a wealthy merchant and investor in business ventures in North America. Most likely through Slaney's intercession, Squanto wound up on an exploratory voyage to Newfoundland, here he encountered Thomas Dermer, an explorer and navigator who had spent time along the Atlantic coast at such spots as Jamestown, Maine, Cape Cod, and Newfoundland. Together they planned an expedition to return to Squanto's former habitat, a village called Patuxet, literally the ground the settlers now occupied. When they arrived in early 1620, Squanto and Dermer discovered the deserted area and evidence of a devastating pandemic. Squanto was then able to interact successfully with members of Massasoit's tribe, finding refuge for both himself, Dermer, and their entourage. This respite was brief. While exploring Martha's Vineyard, Dermer and his party were savagely attacked by local hostiles there, alienated by the transgressions of Hunt earlier. Dermer was seriously injured, but managed to escape to Virginia, where he rapidly succumbed either to wounds suffered on Martha's Vineyard or one of many possible diseases. Squanto threw in his lot with Massasoit and the Poconokets, who considered him valuable as a translator in any potential interactions with English speakers, but were wary of his potential to manipulate both sides to his benefit in any conversation involving property or commerce. After a brief introduction and explanation of his background, Squanto then revealed an even more startling revelation. His initial conversation was merely a preamble to the main act. Massasoit, with a large contingent of warriors, was only minutes away and desired an immediate conference with those in charge of the new colony. 
This clearly was not an offer the settlers could refuse. Within minutes, on Watson's Hill, another crest above the tiny village, an impressive contingent consisting of Massasoit and his bodyguard of 60 warriors suddenly appeared. These men were impressively face-painted with colors and designs of red, black, yellow, and white, adorned with shell necklaces, animal furs, and knives. Each also carried a full quiver of arrows and the bows the colonists knew to be quite malevolent. Even the most self-assured villager must have been quite apprehensive. Despite having firearms, there were no more than two dozen men healthy enough to try and defend their humble redoubt. These warriors could have made short work of the entire venture had this been Massasoit's intent. Eventually, the great sachem, the most impressive of all of the visitors, came forward and after several elaborate greetings and rituals that even included a trumpet and drum welcome salute, the great chief and 20 of his men, unarmed, proceeded to a still unfinished village house. There they were greeted by Governor Carver and several other settlers, where greetings were exchanged. Toasts of aquavit were consumed, and most importantly, a treaty of fundamental agreements involving coexistence and mutual support was quickly hammered out with the assistance of Squanto. Massasoit had spent much of the winter mulling over how he should deal with a group he at first considered interlopers, a group related to those who had already brought treachery and destruction to the region. But Massasoit had other factions that were way more formidable than this tiny irritant. His perpetual competitors, the Narragansetts, had gotten the upper hand in his own backyard, the Poconokets' numbers reduced by as much as 80% by their own recent exposure to plague and disease. He also heard Squanto's constant refrain that the English could eventually provide firearms, and it became accepted belief among the tribe that the plagues that descended upon the natives was a physical force that the English could willfully control. Imagine if Massasoit could harness that type of weapon in dealing with his tribal enemies. It was this agenda that led to this tribal non-aggression pact, but also actual cooperation in which the great sachem promised to help the immigrants learn the best practices involving agriculture, fishing, and hunting. Massasoit and his entourage left in the late afternoon but Squanto was left behind and spared little time before descending into nearby mudflats and extracting an enormous bounty of eels that eventually wound up on the dinner table. His next project involved demonstrating to the settlers how a multitude of herring would spawn in a nearby stream and how harvesting these fish was an integral part of the process of planting corn the seeds accompanied by a generous amount of fish fertilizer to overcome the marginal agricultural quality of the nearby fields. This process also involved the planting of beans and squash, all three vegetables able to thrive utilizing the native's simple methodologies. The stash of stolen corn seed was put to good use. The settlers' own barley and peas brought for the purpose of farming was only modestly productive. With the onset of spring and milder weather, the establishment of at least an initial footprint of a settlement, and the astonishing new relationship with a powerful local ally, Captain Christopher Jones decided that this was the appropriate time to sail back to England. 
After all of its cargo was removed and brought ashore, rocks were added for ballast, and on April 5th, the Mayflower slowly made its way out of the harbor, an introspective moment for all of those left on shore. Because of the seasonably calm weather and westerly prevailing winds that propelled the ship instead of impeding the craft, it took only a month for the Mayflower to reach its home port and Jones's residence on the outskirts of London at Rotherhithe. For a brief period, he and his ship continued to participate in transporting goods like sugar between England and neighboring countries across the English Channel. But Jones's health, permanently impaired by his Atlantic crossing with the Plymouth settlers, was undermined to the extent that he died on March 5, 1622, less than a year after returning from North America. The ship remained unused for two years, tied up in the Thames near Rutherhithe. Without proper maintenance, it fell into disrepair, and eventually its owners, which included Jones's widow, applied for an official valuation from the Admiralty, which came to a little more than 100 pounds. There are no substantial accounts as to what happened after the ship was dismantled. The most appealing suggestion that the timber from the ship eventually was used to construct a barn in the county of Buckinghamshire. For many years, the structure was presented to tourists as a Mayflower relic. Today, it is closed to the public, its historical provenance suspect. Although Jones left the colony as it continued to make tangible progress, the toll of the first winter was considerable. Of the 18 adult females who set out on the Mayflower, only five remained alive when spring finally arrived. Death within the colony continued grimly despite improving temperatures. Sheer exhaustion may have contributed to the fate of Governor John Carver. On a hot April day, while helping with a communal effort to plant crops, Carver became incapacitated by a severe headache, most likely the result of the onset of a stroke. Carried by other men back to his unfinished hut, he died on or about April 5th, his death leaving a tremendous vacuum of leadership. By then, the formerly dynamic William Brewster was, after the dietary and environmental deprivations of a harsh voyage in winter, practically frail and no longer an appropriate choice for an authority figure. Of the remaining potential candidates, the individual who seemed to evoke the level-headedness and thoughtful perception of Carver was William Bradford, ultimately selected as the colony's next governor. His office was fraught with foreboding internal and external challenges. By the time of Bradford's selection, only weeks after the death of Carver, the former governor's wife, Catherine, was also already dead. But amidst this relentlessly fatal procession, other life-affirming attempts transpired. One of Bradford's first official acts was to preside over the civil wedding ceremony of Edward Winslow and Susanna White. Winslow's wife was in failing health for months, most likely from a combination of tuberculosis and scurvy, until she succumbed on March 24, 1621. Susanna White's husband, William, died on the 21st of February. Prominent as the first woman to give birth within the Plymouth Colony, a son named Peregrine, born in late November, aboard the Mayflower, anchored in Plymouth Harbor. She also achieved the distinction of being the only widow to survive the first Plymouth winter. 
Only six weeks after the death of Winslow's spouse, Edward and Susanna tied the knot. A union perhaps driven as much by necessity rather than passion. The summer of 1621 would test Bradford's leadership skills, the result of two serious encounters with various tribal entities that underlined that Massasoit was only one of the indigenous factions in the region. The first resulted from behavior typical of a particular Mayflower family that could only be described as a bunch of antisocial pests. John Billington, his wife, and their two sons were part of the stranger contingent that the adventurers foisted upon the separatist religious faction when the Mayflower was still in England. As such, he was already hostile to such individuals as Carver, Standish, and Brewster, and constantly bickered on board the ship, especially when the original destination of Virginia was jettisoned. One of the ringleaders of the entity that proclaimed that without a valid royal charter, Billington was beyond any other colonist's authority. While the Mayflower sat at its initial anchorage in Provincetown Harbor, his youngest son Francis accidentally discharged a firearm on board the ship, narrowly missing a gunpowder keg that would have blown the vessel and everyone in it to bits. Although he did sign the Mayflower Compact, Billington Sr.'s antagonism towards members of the rest of the community, especially Miles Standish, was so pronounced that eventually the usually mild-mannered Governor Carver felt it necessary to publicly admonish him by ordering that his feet and hands be bound in a late March official humiliation. While Carver was talked out of such a demonstration by Bradford, and the pleas of the rest of the Billington family. Subsequent events reinforced the Billingtons' family's village idiot status. In the spring of 1621, 16-year-old John Billington Jr. wandered away from the colony and into the woods, eventually getting completely lost, the surrounding unfamiliar wilderness the perfect environment for such extreme disorientation. For a week, famished and terrified, he stumbled through the forest until he fell into an Indian village a good 20 miles from Plymouth. The sachem of this village, known as Manamit, was an individual named Kanakam. Although a Poconokit, he, like many other tribal leaders of the region, was not thrilled about Massasoit's alliance with the Mayflower settlers. As such, he conveyed the Billington boy not to the settlers or even Massasoit, but to the Nauset tribe. This was the entity victimized earlier by Thomas Hunt and the owners of the corn cache and burial grounds that were dug up and trashed while the Mayflower was anchored in Provincetown Harbor. Word eventually filtered back to Bradford through Massasoit as to the fate of the Billington teenager. Figuring he couldn't just abandon the boy, Bradford ordered ten armed men, including Edward Winslow, to load up the small sailing ship used during exploration, take Squanto and another native interpreter, Tokamahaman, and head to eastern Cape Cod and Nauset territory. A storm forced the boat to come ashore at what is now Barnstable, Massachusetts, on the northern shore of the Cape, about halfway across the lower portion of the peninsula. Luckily, the sachem there, Ayano was loosely connected with the Poconokets and not the Nossets. Estimated to be in his mid-twenties, amiable and communicative with Squanto, he offered to accompany the group further into Nosset territory. 
Within days, as they sailed close to the shore of central Cape Cod, they were eventually confronted by a group of at least a hundred adult male Nossets, the colonists keeping their distance and making it clear through Squanto that they were armed and did not want the natives to approach their vessel. Eventually, Aspinet, the sachem of the Nossets, arrived, and despite some initial tension, the settlers agreed through the interpreters that they were wrong to have stolen the corn but that they were starving, that they were not like Hunt, who was considered a bad man in their country, and that they only wanted Billington Jr. to be returned. A Nosset warrior eventually carried the teenager, who seemed in good health, out to the boat. Aspinet was presented with an impressive piece of steel cutlery, and peace was declared. Before they departed, the sachem delivered an ominous headline, Massasoit had been involved in a skirmish with the Narragansetts. Several Poconokets were killed and Massasoit taken prisoner. If this was true, the Plymouth colony, especially at half strength, was in grave danger. Massasoit was the territorial buffer between the settlers and the Narragansetts, who would have eradicated the settlement at the earliest opportunity. Upon their return, Winslow and company found out that Massasoit was out of danger, but during the chaos, another sachem was attempting to sever the Poconokets' agreement with the colonists. Bradford sent his two interpreters to the village of Namasket in search of the sachem, Corbitant, to determine what exactly his motives were. Squanto included some other Poconokets in his party, and within days, one of these warriors named Habamak came racing back to Plymouth with news that Squanto, while meeting with natives at Namasket, was overpowered, was feared killed, after this warrior fled. Corbitant was angered by the mere presence of Squanto, who he considered probably justifiably as the main influence behind Massasoit's alliance with the settlers. For William Bradford, this was an even bigger quandary. If Squanto was was indeed dead at the hands of the Poconokets of Namasket. At the very least, the treaty called for the handover of those responsible to the settlers for punishment, an eventuality that even Massasoit would find difficult to enforce. Most likely, this might precipitate a power struggle between the various sachems hostile to the settlers and Massasoit, who, based on his greatly diminished power, might possibly lose a result that again would leave Plymouth Colony in a precarious position. Nevertheless, Bradford again ordered Miles Standish to lead a group of 14 armed men to Namasket and determine if Squanto was dead. If so, Corbitant was to be seized and brought to Plymouth. Even with firearms, the 14 colonists understood that they were embarking on an extremely ambitious expedition. Accompanied by Hobamek, who would be able to identify key locations in the village of Namasket, the Standish Company quickly made its way to the objective, crept to the edge of the village, and waited until nightfall to conduct a midnight raid on what Hobamek identified as the Sachem's wigwam. A steady rain had been coming down for hours, the sound of raindrops on the surface of the native dwellings helping the attackers to achieve complete surprise. With Standish in the lead, several colonists burst into Corbitant's wigwam, screaming for the sachem to present himself. Several random gunshots, both inside and outside of the hut, produced terror, and ultimately an explanation that Corbitant and most of the men of the village were not present. 
Squanto and Tokamahaman were quickly located, and eventually order was restored. Standish offered to transport two slightly wounded natives to Plymouth Colony for medical treatment, an offer that was accepted. However, before he returned with his company to Plymouth, Standish admonished the inhabitants of Namaskat that if Corbitant continued to agitate against them and Massasoit, they would pursue, capture, and punish him. This mission and its outcome seems to have had a galvanizing effect on the various indigenous power brokers in the region. Massasoit, aware that some of his contemporaries were at least attempting to undermine his authority, was grateful for the colonists' supportive response, most likely because of the audacity of the attack, the willingness to use firearms, and the refusal to be intimidated, and Massasoit's ability to reassert his control. Gradually, peace feelers from throughout the region were received at Plymouth Colony. This preceded another formal ceremony on September 13, 1621, and treaty of mutual protection and pledge of loyalty to the King of England, James I, that was signed by nine different sachems, including Epinau, a Nosset from Martha's Vineyard, Kanakam, a player in the Billington Jr. affair, Massasoit's brother, Quatakina, as an affirmation of Massasoit's continued support, and even Corbitant, who did not wish to remain an outlier. Although on a daily basis, life continued to be harsh and frequently unforgiving, by the end of September, settlers at Plymouth Colony seemed to have turned a corner. They concluded the first harvest of all of the crops that they meticulously planted earlier in the spring. Corn, squash, beans, and even some amounts of barley and peas were stockpiled, a plentiful contrast to the dreadful deprivation of the previous winter. As massive flocks of ducks and geese migrated through the area, the settlers were able to hunt down as many of these birds as they wished, again putting aside a large quantity to help celebrate a tradition that was centuries old, a harvest festival consisting of food, drink, and good cheer. But this festival was also an acknowledgment of their special gratitude to their original ally, Massasoit, who Bradford described as arriving with five deer, oysters, a hundred participants, and another addition to the festivities, wild turkey. For the English, this was not a novelty. Spanish conquistadors not only looted Mexico of gold, they also introduced the domesticated turkey of the region to the tables of Western Europe. In England, turkey already considered a meal consumed during a Christmas feast. Best of all, the settlers had more than enough barley to brew beer, their last rations of this staple, having sailed away on the Mayflower. Although this festival was the impetus for the national American holiday known as Thanksgiving, the colonists at Plymouth would not have referred to their planned three-day event by that name, a term they applied instead to a much more serious religious rite, acknowledging gratitude to the Almighty. Instead, they celebrated with games, military exercises, and vast amounts of food and drink. Only four adult women, including Susanna White Winslow, were still alive to help cook the meal, along with their daughters and a few servants. There is no historical record of a specific menu, but geese, duck, venison, and at least some turkey were present. Grain from corn was utilized in the form of either bread or porridge. 
the venison and some of the larger fowl were probably roasted on a spit. Some of the meat would have wound up in a stew with vegetables like green beans and squash, clams, oysters, eels, striped bass, and even lobsters were another major part of the meal based on their ease of acquisition. Walnuts and chestnuts might have been part of a crude stuffing involving herbs and chunks of cut-up onions. There was no butter or shortening, no wheat-based bread for traditional stuffing. This lack of wheat also meant no pumpkin pie or pies of any sort, certainly not apple, which was not yet prevalent in the region. Fruits like cranberries, plums, melons, and grapes provided the only food even resembling dessert. But with a scarcity of sugar, no one would have considered mixing the large quantities required to assemble something even remotely like today's cranberry sauce. Still, for those who were able to bask in the plentiful food they did have and the good fortune of still being alive, it must have been quite a celebration. Unfortunately, this was the high point of peaceful coexistence between the natives and the colonists in the region. Shortly after the harvest celebration and the settlers' jubilation over their plentiful stores, another English ship sent by Thomas Weston and the adventurers materialized. Without any type of warning, the ship, the Fortune, on November 9, 1621, offloaded as many as 35 and at least 28 new settlers on shore. Virtually nothing of any consequence in terms of food or munitions were provided for these emigrants, mostly single males. Also on board was Robert Cushman, the separatist's former business agent in England. He came with a letter from Weston chastising the settlers for not loading up the Mayflower with saleable merchandise as per the original agreement and inferred that this was due to their own laziness and petty behavior. This letter was addressed to the now-deceased Governor Carver. It, of course, outraged the settlers, and Bradford immediately began to compose a suitable response. Cushman also asked the settlers to sign the original agreement that the settlers had postponed when they left England, essentially acknowledging their debt and arrangement with the adventurers. Although they all eventually signed, Bradford did include a scathing letter that underlined that Carver had literally dropped dead while laboring on Weston's behalf. The colonists did load up the fortune with beaver pelts and timber that retired a substantial amount of debt, but emotions ran high, especially because the additional mouths to feed meant that food was again a precarious situation as winter approached. From a historic perspective, perhaps the most important document that Cushman brought back when the ship left on December 13, 1621, was the Winslow Bradford manuscript detailing life in the colony in its first year, concluding with a description of the recent celebration feast, published as Mort's Relation, Mort a corruption of the editor's name, the pamphlet is one of the few primary sources of information about the establishment of Plymouth Colony. Another incident shortly after the departure of the fortune only ratcheted up the tension within the colony. Despite progress with many of the tribes in their vicinity, the settlers still faced other adversaries like the Narragansett, who remained hostile and eager to destroy the alliance between the Poconokets and the settlers. Out of nowhere, a Narragansett messenger walked into the village asking for Squanto, who was elsewhere. 
The messenger then wordlessly handed over a packet of arrows bundled with a rattlesnake skin from Canonicus, the Narragansett Sachem. Although Squanto eventually interpreted this symbolic offering, Bradford had already perceived it as the challenge and threat that it was. Although the messenger was anxious to leave, the governor had him wait and then presented him with the same rattlesnake skin, now stuffed with gunpowder and bullets, a message that resonated with Canonicus, who refused to even touch the package upon its return. However, this exchange seemed to intensify in the colony a feeling of permanent collective anxiety about potential native attacks. They responded in approximately a month by building an eight-foot-tall wooden palisade around the entire settlement, about a half-mile in length. This construction underlined a mentality now unfortunately clear to both the colony and its neighbors, one of fundamental mistrust. The wall around the compound was locked and guarded at night. Miles Standish also organized the male settlers into four separate armed units, subjecting them to drill and coordination. Completion of the wall was only a temporary respite. To this increasing paranoia, more stress was added when in June of 1622, two more English vessels arrived, carrying 60 more emigrants. With them came the news that Weston had severed his agreement with the other adventurers, that these men were there to establish their own Weston finance colony. And by the way, in the meantime, until they got up to speed, could you, Bradford, feed and house them? Although Cushman also informed Bradford in his own letter that the fortune had been captured by the French and the entire shipment of goods seized, he advised Bradford to have nothing to do with this new venture, describing the latest contingent as faithless ruffians. But Bradford, having lived through such an experience, knew what this type of rejection would mean, and a true Christian decided against turning these emigrants away. For his tolerance, Bradford was rewarded with his new charges, eating everything they could get their hands on, including Plymouth Colony's growing corn as it was still green in the fields. Eventually, Weston's new employees made their way about 20 miles up the coast to a location known as Wessagusset, now Weymouth, Massachusetts. As it was clear that the harvest of 1622 was not even close to providing enough food for Plymouth's inhabitants, Bradford resolved to lead a trading expedition to Cape Cod. Even more desperate for food, the newly entrenched settlers at Wessagusset agreed to assist in this effort loaning Bradford their small ship, the Swan, to undertake the expedition. Squanto was to accompany Bradford on the mission, his status greatly diminished when he was implicated earlier in the year in an elaborate plot to induce hostility between Massasoit and the Plymouth Colony. Only Bradford's refusal to hand him over to the Poconokets prevented his execution. Squanto claimed to be able to navigate the swan through the shoals that forced the Mayflower to turn back in 1620, and he successfully guided the ship to present-day Chatham, Massachusetts. There he also helped Bradford negotiate a sizable purchase of corn and beans. Just when the ship was to continue southwards, Squanto suddenly became extremely ill and died in a matter of days in a manner that was suspicious, especially for an individual who had survived both continual close contact with white people 
and literally lived in Western Europe. Historically unsubstantiated is the belief that he was poisoned by a confederate of Massasoit. Either way, Bradford, who relied and still believed in the interpreter, was crushed by the loss. Upon his return to Plymouth in the winter of 1623, Bradford was greeted with rumors from Massasoit and the interpreter, Hobamek, that the Massachusetts natives that controlled the indigenous settlement called Shawmut, today known as the city of Boston, coordinating with other local tribes fed up with the Wessagusset settlement inhabitants pillaging their crops and food, were on the verge of attacking in great numbers, intent on wiping out both colonies. As Bradford formally considered Squanto as a trusted ally, Standish felt the same about Hobamek. These rumors also coincided with news that over 300 settlers in Jamestown had been slaughtered by native elements there. Although he waited until the spring, Standish resolved to preemptively extinguish the threat before any such attack. In late March of 1623, he invited several powerful native warriors and sachems to participate in negotiations to resolve their complaints. Instead, when this meeting occurred and upon serving large amounts of food and alcohol, the most prominent natives present, with Tuamot and Pexwat, and another warrior were attacked, Standish grabbing the knife from around Wituwamot's neck and personally stabbing him repeatedly in the chest, killing him. Wituwamot's teenage brother, who was waiting in the vicinity, was also subdued and subsequently hanged. Wituwamot was then beheaded and his head stuck on a pike at the main entry gate at Plymouth. The residents of Wessagusset either sailed the Swan to fishing villages in Maine or relocated to Plymouth. This action set off a collective panic among all of the native tribes in the entire region. The awareness of such ruthlessness underlined the potential savagery of the colonists. Not only did these immigrants possess firearms, they also possessed the power to release deadly plagues and diseases at their whim, or so the natives thought. En masse, large groups of the indigenous peoples of the region fled into hiding in swamps and remote areas, subjecting themselves to additional disease and famine. Within months, many of these tribal entities were greatly diminished, allowing for the 1628 establishment and rapid expansion of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, a settlement with 20,000 inhabitants that by 1640 dwarfed Plymouth. Despite the tension between Plymouth and most of the native tribes of southeastern Massachusetts, Massasoit was able to maintain peaceable relations personally with such influential individuals within the colony as Edward Winslow, who served as a kind of ambassador for Plymouth, an occasional governor, and William Bradford, re-elected governor of Plymouth Colony for many of the years leading up to his death in 1657. By then, Bradford was remarried with three more children and completed a manuscript known today as Of Plymouth Plantation, an account of the founding of Plymouth Colony and its aftermath, and one of history's most famous memoirs. This manuscript has been edited many times by many individuals, perhaps the most notable edition, transcribed by Samuel Eliot Morrison. Miles Standish also lived into his 70s, his military position serving Plymouth Plantation ending around 1635. By then, he and others had successfully negotiated with the merchant adventurers to retire their debt 
Standish receiving a 120-acre farm in the area known today as Duxbury, Massachusetts. He subsequently served in various Plymouth Colony administrative positions, including as a kind of superintendent of highways, until his death in 1656, age 72. His close associate and friend, Hobamach, lived in his household until the native interpreter's death in 1642. Other original Mayflower voyagers were not as productive. Despite receiving property and cattle that should have provided a stable existence, John Billington got into a dispute with a 17-year-old male neighbor who he ultimately shot to death. Tried for murder, he was convicted and hanged, earning the distinction of probably the first colonist formally punished for murder in the New World. Unfortunately, even the delicate but peaceful relationship between colonists and Massasoit's Poconokets and the ever-increasing immigrant population did not last. Massasoit lived until the age of 80, passing in 1661. His son Wamsutta became the new sachem, but disputes over land sales prompted his formal detainment in 1662 by the Plymouth Judicial Court and his subsequent death shortly after this detention was believed suspicious by his brother and successor, Metacomet, another son of Massasoit. The belief that Wamsutta was poisoned was one of the fundamental grievances that eventually contributed in 1675 to one of the most violent and costly native rebellions in U.S. history. One of Metacomet's military opponents was Josiah Winslow, then governor of Plymouth Colony and the son of Edward Winslow. At its conclusion, three years later, dozens of colonial New England settlements lay in ruins and thousands of settlers were killed or injured. But Metacomet also died, shot to death in a Rhode Island swamp, his severed head then displayed at Plymouth Colony. The Poconokets, known today as the Wampanoags, were virtually wiped out, survivors indentured or sold directly into slavery in the Caribbean or Spain. This conflict is usually denoted by Metacomet's anglicized name, which was Philip, the fighting denoted as King Philip's War. Today, his descendants, only about 2,000 Wampanoags, are officially counted as tribal members. In their heyday, there were an estimated 3,000 Wampanoags on Martha's Vineyard alone. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about the Mayflower. Information for this podcast came from the books Mayflower, A Story of Courage, Community, and War by Nathaniel Philbrick and The Mayflower by Rebecca Frazier. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People. Follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons and subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige. And also, if you like bite-sized biographies, please tell a friend. Mm-hmm.